How We Created the Nonsense Prison We Live In In the 21st century, we find ourselves living in a paradoxical technological age where we're all connected with near instantaneous text and video communication, as well as access to a vast storehouse of information, both good and bad, that spans the globe. In spite of this abundance of data, many of us spend our time alone on social media watching cat videos or some other silliness, or raising our blood pressure from divisive politics or some kind of social injustice. Not only are we more disconnected, isolated, and alienated from each other, evident in the way so many of us, even in social situations, are glued to our smartphone screens, we are, for the most part, more divided and cut off from the natural world than ever before. How could this happen? The surprising answer to this quandary goes all the way back to how we originally altered our perception of reality in the way we chose to communicate. The expressive, gestural basis of language was emphasized in the first half of the 18th century by the Italian philosopher Giambattista Vico, 1668-1744, who, in his New Science, wrote about how language arose from expressive gestures, suggesting that the earliest and most basic words took shape from expletives uttered in startled response to powerful natural events, or from the frightened, stuttering mimesis of such events, like the crack and rumble of thunder across the sky. Shortly thereafter, in France, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712-1778, wrote about gestures and spontaneous expressions of feeling as the earliest forms of language, while in Germany, Johann Gottfried Herder, 1744-1803, argued that language originated in our sensuous receptivity to the sounds and shapes of the natural environment. In his embodied philosophy of language, Frenchman Maurice Merleau-Ponty, 1908-1961, inherited this long-standing, somewhat heretical lineage. Linguistic meaning for him is rooted in the felt experience induced by specific sounds and sound shapes as they echo and contrast with one another, each language a kind of song, a particular way of singing the world. Only if words are felt bodily presences, like echoes or waterfalls, can we truly understand the power of a spoken language to influence, alter, and transform the perceptual world. To neglect this dimension and overlook the power that words have as spoken phrases to influence the body and modulate our sensory experience of the world around us is to render even the most mundane communicative capacity of language incomprehensible. The innovation which gave rise to what became our alphabet was developed by the Semitic scribes around 1500 BCE and consisted of recognizing that almost every syllable of their language was composed of one or more silent consonantal elements plus an element of sounded breath that we now call vowels. These silent consonants provided the bodily framework or shape that the sounded breath flowed through. This original Semitic Aleph-Beth established a character or letter for each of the consonants, while the sounded breath that the vowels added to the consonants were chosen by the interactive reader, who varied the sounded breath according to the written context. 
With the advent of the Aleph Beth, a new distance opened up between human culture and the rest of nature. Pictographic and ideographic writing already involved a displacement of our sensory participation from the depths of the animate environment to the flat surface of our walls, clay tablets, or sheets of papyrus. But these written images typically related us back to the other animals in the environing earth. The pictographic glyph, or character, still referred to the animate phenomena of which it was the static image, and it was that worldly phenomena that provoked from us the sound of its name. The sensible phenomenon and its spoken name were still participant with one another in that the name remained an emanation of the sensible entity, but with a phonetic alphabet, the written character no longer referred us to any sensible phenomenon out in the world or to the name of such a phenomenon, but solely to a gesture made by the human mouth. This facilitated a concerted shift of attention away from any outward or worldly reference of the pictorial image, away from the sensible phenomenon that had previously called forth the spoken utterance, to the shape of the utterance itself, now invoked directly by the written character. A direct association was established between the pictorial sign and the vocal gesture, for the first time totally bypassing the thing pictured. When we consider the early Semitic Aleph Beth, we can recognize its pictographic inheritance. Aleph, the first letter, is also the ancient Hebrew word for ox. The shape of the letter was an ox's head with horns turned over to become the letter A. Similarly, the name of the Semitic letter Mem is the Hebrew word for water, which later became our letter M drawn as a series of waves. The letter Ayin, which meant I in Hebrew, was drawn as a circle, the picture of an eye, which was made over into a vowel by the Greek scribes, eventually becoming our letter O and the Hebrew letter Kof. The Hebrew term for monkey was drawn as a circle, intersected by a long, dangly tail, which gave us the letter Q. With the transfer of phonetic writing to Greece and the consequent transformation of the Semitic Aleph Beth into the Greek alphabet, the progressive abstraction of linguistic meaning from the enveloping life world reached a level of completion when the Greek scribes took on with slight modifications both of shapes of the Semitic letters and their Semitic names. Aleph, the first letter which meant ox, became alpha, and Beth, the second letter which meant house, became beta, while Gimel, the third letter, and the word for camel became gamma, and so on. While the Semitic names had older, non-grammatical meanings for those who spoke the Semitic tongue, the Greek version of those names had non-grammatical meaning for the Greeks. While the Semitic name for the letter was also the name of the sensorial entity commonly imagined by or associated with the letter, the Greek name had no sensorial reference whatsoever. While the Semitic name served as a reminder of the worldly origin of the letter, the Greek name served only to designate the human-made letter itself. The pictorial iconic significance of many of the Semitic letters, which was memorialized in the spoken names, was now lost. Prior to the advent of the written word, 
Oral traditions passed down through generations dating back to prehistory preserve the cultural knowledge of peoples. This practice is still in use today in many indigenous, illiterate cultures. For the Greeks, the Homeric epics, probably written down in the 7th century BCE, are orally evolved poems that were sung and resung, shifting and complexifying, long before they were written down and frozen in the form that we now know them in. The Greek alphabet was adapted from the Aleph Beth several centuries before Plato, most likely during the 8th century BCE. But the new technology did not spread rapidly through Greece. It encountered resistance from a highly developed and ritualized oral culture. The traditions of pre-alphabetic Greeks lived in oral stories, regularly recited and passed down from generation to generation by bards, or rhapsodies and the chanted tales carried within their nested narratives the accumulated knowledge of their culture. Since they were not written down, they were never fixed, but shifted with each telling, to fit the circumstances of a particular audience, gradually incorporating new practical knowledge, while letting what was obsolete fall away. The sung stories, along with the ceremonies they were linked with, served as living encyclopedias of their culture carrying and preserving the collected knowledge and customs of the community, and they themselves remained preserved through repetition and ritual reenactment, so there was little need for reading and writing. According to literary historian Eric Havelock, for the first two or three centuries after its appearance in Greece, the alphabet was an interloper lacking social standing. It struggled to achieve use as the elite of society were all reciters and performers. In a culture as thoroughly oral as the Greeks were back then, the alphabet could only take root by aligning itself with the oral tradition. So the first large written texts to appear in Greece, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are paradoxically oral texts, not written compositions, but alphabetic transcriptions of orally chanted poems. Homer was an oral bard or rhapsode, from the Greek rhapsoidine, which meant to stitch song together, which they did by stitching together an oral tapestry from a vast store of memorized epithets and formulaic phrases, embellishing and elaborating a cycle of stories that had already been improvised or stitched together by earlier bards since the Trojan War. When the Homeric epics were recorded in writing, the art of the rhapsodies began losing their preservative and instructive function. The knowledge embedded in epic stories and myths was now captured for the first time in a visible fixed form which could be returned to, examined, and questioned. It was then, under the slowly spreading influence of alphabetic technology, that language began to separate itself from the animate flux of the world, becoming a ponderable presence in its own right. In The Muse Learns to Write, Havelock stated, It's only as language is written down that it becomes possible to think about it. The acoustic medium, being incapable of visualization, did not achieve recognition as a phenomenon wholly separable from the person who used it. But in the alphabetized document, the medium became objectified. There it was, reproduced perfectly in the alphabet, no longer just a function of me, the speaker but a document with an independent existence. 
The scribe or author could now dialogue with his own visible inscriptions, viewing and responding to his own words, even as he wrote them down, bringing a new power of reflexivity into existence, borne by the relation between the scribe and his scripted text. Historically, Plato and his mostly non-literate teacher Socrates are recognized as the hinge on which the sensuous, mimetic, profoundly embodied style of consciousness proper to orality gave way to the more detached, abstract mode of thinking engendered by alphabetic literacy. It was Plato who carefully developed and brought to terms the collective thought structures appropriate to the new technology. What this makes clear is that the shapes of our consciousness are shifting with the technologies that engage our senses, much as we can now discern how the distinctive shape of Western philosophy was born at the meeting between the human senses and the alphabet in ancient Greece. The invention of movable type by Johann Gutenberg in the 15th century, and subsequently the printing press, is in the dissemination of uniformly printed texts that it made possible, ushered in the Enlightenment and the profoundly detached view of nature that prevails today in the modern world. In recent centuries, the industrial and technological practice is made possible by this new distance from the natural world and have carried alphabetic awareness throughout the globe, infiltrating even those cultures that had retained iconic, ideographic writing systems. Couple this with the modern-day explosive growth of the Internet and the proliferating disconnects we experience among ourselves in the natural world, and we see this distancing process exacerbated to a high degree of complexity.